Hello. Welcome back to Conversations with Stephen Kamgasa. Today's guest is Emeritus Professor John Chavez of the Department of Government at the London School of Economics. John Chavez is the Emeritus Professor of History of Political Philosophy at the LSE. During his teaching career, John was a visiting professor at the John Hopkins University in Baltimore and a visiting fellow at the Australian National University in Canberra. He has published seven books and numerous articles. John now divides his time between France and Brighton in England and occupies himself with his love of all things gardening. He is also working on a new book entitled Communitarian Ethics. In this episode, we answer the question, how to challenge identity politics in a liberal democracy? John, welcome. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> Dear Hadid, the New York Times correspondent based in East Jerusalem wrote in 2016 a piece about Alexandria in Egypt. And I quote, My mother spoke French with her Greek neighbors in Alexandria at the time, Egypt's most cosmopolitan city. She skipped Catholic school to ride in a red convertible with a German girlfriend down broad boulevards. She wore a skied in a swimsuit, enjoying the freedom of this city in the 1960s, when it was still a beacon of Mediterranean culture. John, I know that Alexandra is nothing like Cairo, where you were born. But what was growing up in Cairo of the 1940s like? And how did the experience shape the man you subsequently became? Right. Well, I have to say, first of all, that I was... <coughs> I left... Cairo for the United Kingdom at the age of seven. Well, actually, I was, I celebrated my eighth birthday on the boat. We took an oil tanker <coughs> through the Mediterranean and up to, we landed at Glasgow in the Clyde, <coughs> which was my first experience of the UK in 1946. So I don't remember all that clearly what life was like for me. It was a privileged life. We had lots of servants. And I particularly remember I had a nanny I greatly loved and a chauffeur who drove us everywhere. So we never had to walk. So it was quite a privileged life. I lost all that privileged life indeed. But I, <clears throat> but um, my background is very mixed. My father was born a Frenchman, but his mother was English and his father was killed in 1914 
fighting the Germans. And his mother brought her children back to England and eventually became English. But my father's first language was French and also my mother's French. My mother was Egyptian, although only half Egyptian because her mother was Italian. So I have all this incredibly mixed background. And I remember that we lived in two language communities in Iran. One was the English-speaking community, which (coughs) consisted of my father's friends. I think they were mainly employees of the Shell Oil Company. And the other one was the French-speaking community, centred on my mother's family, who all spoke French. My mother, although Egyptian, her first language was French. She went, she was brought up speaking French, went to French schools and indeed French universities. And <clears throat> her family spoke French, all Egyptian. The educated Egyptian elite went to these French schools and spoke French. And <clears throat> the, the French speaking community that we lived in partly, (coughs) comprised all sorts of people from Mediterranean countries like, well, Italy, like my grandmother, Greece particularly, Lebanon, Malta, and so on. So it was very cosmopolitan and French-speaking. But believe it or not, My parents brought me up as a monolingual Englishman. I think they tried to teach my elder sister to bring her up as French and English speaking, but they failed so abysmally they didn't bother to try with me. So there I was... Half living in this French-speaking community, without any French, I must have picked up a smattering. This is important for (coughs) my identity because despite my mongrel background and and actual life among French-speaking people, I was absolutely certain that I was British. My father insisted we were British. We weren't, despite all these people that we (coughs) were living amongst who were speaking French and came from all over the world, all over the Mediterranean, we were British. (laughs) And this had an important effect on me. So when we came to UK when I landed at the age of eight. This was the land, my land, my country. But that, but um, so actually coming to the United Kingdom at the age of eight from Cairo made the contrast extremely painful for me because I was immediately sent to 
one of those ghastly boarding schools that the English developed. And <clears throat> I, what I felt was a series of deprivations. I was deprived of my nanny, my chauffeur, my family, <laughs> all material comforts and any decent food. But this was being British. I knew fairly soon that I wasn't going to be able to escape this. And this, <coughs> I took it, was what it was to be British. So I knew I had to make a success of this and become as British as everybody else. I acquired a stiff upper lip, no complaining, and so on and so forth. So I did make a success of it, and I became, I definitely became as British as anybody else in those schools. I think that's enough on that. Well, I think that's enough indeed. Um, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines identity politics as signifying, and I quote, <clears throat> a wide range of political activity and theorizing founded in the shared experiences of injustice of members of certain social groups, rather than organizing solely around belief systems, programmatic manifestos or party affiliation, identity political formations typically aim to secure the political freedom of a specific constituency marginalized within its larger context. Members of that constituency assert or reclaim ways of understanding their distinctiveness that challenge dominant characterizations with the goal of greater self-determination. Now, John, in a language an ordinary man in the street would understand, how would you add to that definition? <laughs> add to it? I don't know, but I think I would <coughs> start in a different place. Um, that seems a pretty good, <clears throat> pretty ripe uh, <clears throat> example of gobbledygook. <laughs> but I think it does point to aspects that I want to emphasise in talking about identity politics, which is, well, first of all, of course, it's political activity connected to the identity that... Uh, group of a collection of people think of themselves as having but and that this identity is something through which they define themselves and understand themselves to be considered inferior in some respect or in many respects to the dominant group in the community and their political activity is directed at acquiring a recognition by the society, and especially the dominant group, of their 
the equal worth of their particular identity. If I may give an example, a couple of examples. First one is gay sexuality. <clears throat> Gays think of their sexuality as an important defining characteristic of their nature. And in a liberal society, of course, they're free or have become free because when I was, when I was young, <clears throat> male homosexuality was a criminal offence. But then the laws changed and in a properly liberal society, gay sexuality is as free as heterosexuality. <clears throat> but those gays who <clears throat> in, have engaged or still engage in what is called identity politics are not satisfied with merely having the freedom to practice their, to exercise their sexuality, fulfill their sexuality. <clears throat> what they want is to have their sexuality recognized as equally worthy form of sexuality as the dominant form heterosexuality. This is manifest in uh, <coughs> associations like gay pride, practices like big gay rallies and so on, and of course in the drive <coughs> to allow gays to give gays the same uh, institutional rights, particularly getting married, being recognised, <laughs> being married by the society in this way to have the identical recognition as heterosexual. That's one example. Another example is a kind of feminism that has come to be called difference feminism. <clears throat> the first feminists wanted the same rights as men. These were rights to run their own property, their lives, their beliefs, and so the same kind of rights as men had, and on the same basis. But different feminists <coughs> are dissatisfied with this because they think these rights are <coughs> forms of being that have been created by men in the image of male identity. So <coughs> they think of the system of rights and law connected with it as the product of male characteristics of impersonal rationality <coughs> that does not do justice to the way of being of women. Women are emotional beings who relate to others through feelings and <coughs> 
want to establish ways of social life not structured by impersonal rights that are characteristic, they think, of liberalism, but (coughs) based on love and caring for others. So (coughs) in order to fulfil their natures as women, they need the the social structure needs to recognize and give rights to them on the basis of that womanly nature the touchy feely aspect of women's being if you just give them the traditional liberal rights which they had acquired this doesn't enable them to live in accordance with their proper way of being. So the identity politics here is the, their identity as women with this special nature, and they want this recognised. They want to be recognised not as sort of males, rational impersonal males, but uh, in accordance with their true nature. So the the political activity is organised around that identity and the claims of equal, to be recognised in respect of that identity as equally worthy as men. Okay, does that help? Oh, yes, indeed. In light of your definition as you've set it out, would you say to me, what would you say to me if I were to argue that those using the term identity politics are usually trying to close down a conversation as in, this is just identity politics? To tell you the truth, I don't know whether they are trying to do that. Um, I think there are rarely important issues here, and I think that when we come to the question of how to challenge identity politics, which is the point of, in a liberal society, which is the point of the podcast, I think you'll see that there are substantive issues that need to be, that constitute a challenge to liberal society and need to be discussed and debated. There's no way in which you can close down these issues just by saying it's identity politics. So if people do try and do that, then this is entirely mistaken. Is it just politics as isn't it just politics as we've always known it <clears throat> in with particular communities trying to protect or further their own personal interests? 
Yes, no, that's a very good question and raises some important issues as to what actually we're looking at by the term identity politics. Because in, <coughs> the standard contrast is between identity politics and interest-based politics. But the distinction between interest and identity is not a very clear-cut one because <coughs> the sorts of political activity connected with identity politics really, as you were saying, <coughs> the attempt to promote interests of a community or a group <coughs> that that group thinks are fundamental to their identity, to who the sort of being they are. Whereas in traditional politics like Labour versus conservatism, which was fundamentally a conflict between the interests of workers or labour and the interests of entrepreneurs, on the other hand, and well, I suppose conservatism includes other aspects of <clears throat> entrepreneurship. But let's just concentrate on that. These were the two great blocks of interest. <clears throat> but they were connected to identities and ideologies and systems of value. What it was to be a worker or an entrepreneur, is an identity with <coughs> values and interests connected with that. So you can think of traditional politics as revolving around identities just in the way as the identity politics that we're actually trying to focus on which I gave examples like gay sexuality and gay pride and women's special nature, they are similarly concerned with questions of identity and interest connected with If I could give some <coughs> other examples which would support the view that you were expressing in your question, A reasonably popular or successful form of politics that has been found in Western in Western countries such as the United States, Britain, France, has been called populism. But in effect, it's based on national identity and the interests that people think are connected to that identity. Brexit is obviously an example of identity politics based on British national identity and the perceived interests of that identity. And But in this respect, the nation is not properly really a 
marginalized group, <coughs> a minority <coughs> that is looking to be recognized as an equal, although there were aspects of that in Brexit campaign. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm beginning to lose my voice. This would be a disaster. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> yes, the nation is really the, the majority. The national, the interests based on national identity are the interests of the majority, not a marginalised minority. Another example of... Um, politics based on identity which has nothing to do with the sort of thing usually meant by identity politics is <clears throat> politics connected to human rights. Human rights politics, I suppose, plays a large, fairly large role in international politics, less so in domestic politics in a country like Britain, but it, of course, was important to some extent in Brexit. Anyway, human rights is based on an identity, everyone's identity as a human being. Mm. The belief is that in respect of our identity as human beings, we are entitled to rights. <clears throat> and a just society will build these rights into the structure of its social and political organisation. But this is a clear case of identity, <laughs> politics connected to identity, and has absolutely nothing to do with the sort of <clears throat> thing that we were that people are referring to when they're talking about identity politics and thinking and believing that this is something new so I think the term identity politics is not actually a very good one it doesn't pick out clearly a specific type of politics which is fairly new and related to the sorts of groups that actually we use it in relation to. I would suggest that instead of identity politics, we should talk about the politics of recognition. But <clears throat> really, you know, that's just my suggestion. And if we're going to talk in this podcast about what everybody can believe we're talking about, things like <coughs> gay sexuality or transgender identities and things like that, well, it's obviously connected with people seeking recognition for their identity, considered as <coughs> despised or disregarded by the society. So, yes, that's my answer to your question. 
I think it's a good question and it contains the important issues in it. Mr. T. Stanley of the Daily Telegraph, speaking on BBC Radio 4 Thought for the Day a while ago, said, Ukraine moves us more than Syria or Yemen because it is, and I quote, a European country, end of quotation, and, open quotation, the young men volunteering or being conscripted could be our sons or fathers, end of quotation. Now, the title of our podcast is How to Challenge Identity Politics in a Liberal Democracy. My question, John, is this. Do you think identity politics need challenging? Yes. In a liberal society, it does. Because it is a wrong-headed interpretation of the equality of persons that is central to a liberal society. And it generates impossible conflicts. I'll have to explain this by, first of all, explaining what I understand by a liberal society. So this is going to take some time. A liberal society is, first of all, a distinct political community, like Britain or the United States or France. And it's one, so it's an independent political entity, and it's one that has decided through whatever internal constitutional forms it has to organise itself on the basis of certain liberal, what we call liberal rights, organise the relations between its members through... a system of equal rights. These are the standard liberal freedoms like free speech, freedom of association and movement, freedom, economic freedom, and more recently sexual freedom. These rights are possessed by every adult or should be possessed in a liberal society by every adult citizen of that state. So first of all, you have to be a member of the state. And secondly, you have to be a human being. And in virtue of your being a human being who is a citizen of that state, you are entitled to these rights. The point about insisting it's a human being is that you have the rights not as a particular sort of human being, but just as a human being possessing the characteristics 
<coughs> and capacities of a human being, and these are essentially that you are a rational, social animal. Rational here should not be thought of as anything very grand. It's just <coughs> the basic human capacity to... <coughs> evaluate your beliefs and desires in terms of reasons. What I, <coughs> what I have most reason to believe is going on outside in the world, what is true or what is good with regard to desires. If I don't have that capacity as... <coughs> It is standardly assumed that animals do not have this capacity. They are not rational beings. They can't evaluate, they can't reflect on themselves and their beliefs and desires in the way that we can through rational speech. And rational speech is just giving reasons and debating reasons. And through this capacity... We can take responsibility for what we believe and how we live. And liberalism gives people these freedoms on the assumption that people will be better off if they are responsible for what they believe to be true and false and what they think is good and bad rather than being told by the state to believe this, don't believe that, and <clears throat> live in this way and not in that way by a body of priests or something, on, <clears throat> on condition that if you do not, we will burn you at the stake or imprison you or cut off your head or whatever. Now, of course, liberalism gets into problem here because with free speech, and I shall have to return to that, because on the one hand, it seems that it is allowing you to decide for yourself what to believe, including that liberalism is a bad thing. But at the same time, it builds liberal structure of rights into its organisation and says, this is how we live here. You have to acknowledge these rights and respect other people's rights. So I might return to that if I have time. Anyway, these rights are possessed by individuals, as I've said, in respect of their being human beings, not in their respect to their being a certain type of human being, a gay person or <coughs> a black person or a, or a woman with a specific nature, but you just have this human capacity to take responsibility for your beliefs and desires. And this is the problem because, uh, no, the, these rights are held equally by all of them, and they're not absolute rights. They, <coughs> they, you have the right 
only insofar as it can fit into a system of equal rights. So my right to freedom isn't a right, my right to free movement, say, isn't a right to push you out of out of my way if you're occupying the space that I want to occupy. If you're already there under reasonable rules, the first occupant who has not pushed somebody else out of the way is entitled to occupy that space and you have to move around. So you've got to have rules which (coughs) regulate the ways in which these fundamental interests that we have in free movement and free association conflict and come into conflict with each other. And this is a complicated matter, but it's important to recognise that they're not absolute rights and you've got to develop a system in which everyone enjoys a regulated equal right. And of course, the rights are also limited by the needs of the community as a community to maintain itself in time and in relation to other communities. So the obvious constraints are national security constraints, public order constraints, public health constraints, such as if there is a serious plague emerging rather than the less serious pandemic that we've been living through and still living through, but then serious constraints on movement, speech may be introduced in the interests of the health of the whole community. Now, the reason why we need to challenge identity politics, as I've been talking about it, the politics of recognition, is because it interprets the equality of persons (coughs) that is fundamental to liberalism as applying not to their identity as human being, but to their identity as a sort of being a gay person, a a touchy-feely woman, a black person with a certain specific black identity. And the claim is that that specific identity, gay sexuality, should be considered equally because they're equal fundamental equals, they should be equally worthy as any other. Uh, <coughs> this, you can see that this is quite a different interpretation of equality from the what I described as a liberal one, which pertains just to your human identity, not to some more substantial way of being. Now, the the substantial way of being view of equality generates 
<coughs> conflicts, an example, which are irresoluble, really. For instance, if I am a <coughs> conservative Muslim or conservative Christian, I may think that, or I probably will think that, gay sexuality is immoral, sinful. God gave us our sexuality to reproduce the species and the gay use of our sexual <coughs> nature is a misuse and should be should not be acceptable or might not even be tolerated, but at any rate, I cannot consider it as equally worthy as heterosexuality, which <coughs> we have been given by God for the purposes that God laid down, and this is a misuse. Now, under liberalism... I have to, I'm a conservative Muslim, say, I have to respect the freedom of gays to exercise their sexuality. But I do not have to consider that exercise as equally worthy. I cannot do so while retaining my right of freedom of thought and its expression, my liberal right. This gives me a right to believe what I think is good and what I think is true. And what I think is true and good is heterosexuality and gay sexuality is bad. Uh, <coughs> so here we have the impossibility of the gay demand with liberalism. The gay demand is that everyone, society, and that includes everyone, you as a Christian conservative and everyone else, you have to think my sexuality is equally worthy with heterosexuality. And I cannot do that and enjoy my liberal rights to think what I believe sincerely is true and good. Now, so this generates absolutely some, there's been some recent legal cases which you may be aware of uh, on this issue. Um, to do with <clears throat> baking wedding cakes, <laughs> celebrating, yes, yes, celebrating yes. gay marriage, Christian bakers refusing to put a message on the cake that a gay couple ordered for their wedding, celebrating gay marriage because this violated the Christian bakers' freedom of expression of their thought. 
they were required to say on the cake, three chairs for gay marriage or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. They lost the case in the, in the courts. They were sued and they, they lost the case. But I, they've appealed and I'm not sure what's happened. But the similar case. You are? I, I lost track of the case. I, I know the case. They, they did appeal, but I can't remember what the outcome of that case was. No, I yes. Can't yes, yes. Now, the way, I mean, this is just a conflict, and there's a way of trying to deal with these conflicts, which I shall come back to later, but. There is also an incoherence in this, in this <coughs> um, politics of recognition version of equal rights. And I shall now explain what the incoherence, or we might call it a contradiction. Take the example of women's rights on the version of women, special nature, touchy-feeling. Now, the claim is that women, this is their essential nature, this is who they are. They cannot be anything else. In this sense, they haven't chosen to be like this, any more than, say, the gay person has chosen to be gay. This is his sexual nature. I don't know. This is possible for you. Probable for you. (laughs) But if they say that in respect of my nature, as this touchy feeling being, I have rights because I am an individual human being and you've got to recognise that I'm entitled to the same rights as men who are rational, impersonal beings, then you're involved in a contradiction because you're only entitled to to rights based on your being a human being, an individual human being, if you have the capacities of an individual human being to take responsibility for who you are, your beliefs, where you live, and so on. So if women are saying that we are not rational beings, we cannot take responsibility for our concern for love and care and the importance of the emotions and so on, then they're not entitled to any rights at all. They are not properly human beings because a human being is a rational being capable of evaluating his beliefs and desires in terms of reasons. So you can't maintain both that you are not a rational being, and you have rights as a human being. 
So supposing instead of adopting that position, I am a Muslim patriarchalist. I I don't claim that I that this is my inherent nature, as women claim about the, the special feminine nature, the difference women I'm talking about. But I claim that I have been so formed by my upbringing and education that this is who I have become. I am a Muslim patriarch. This is my deep-rooted cultural identity, and I can't be any other. And I'm claiming that this identity and the interests based on it must be recognised as equally worthy with the identities of liberal people, whoever. But here again, the way to show that this isn't going to work is because if I couldn't be anything else than what I am, what I have become, this Muslim patriarchalist, and that I'm... <clears throat> I'm admitting that I'm not responsible for the beliefs that I have and the values that I have. So I'm accepting that in those respects, I am not a rational being. And in that case, if you are not a rational being, you can't have any rights. So you don't have these rights to be a Muslim patriarchalist. You can see how, at the same time, a Muslim patriarchalist is in <clears throat> radical conflict in his demands, impossible conflict with the feminists. The Muslim patriarchalist says that women are inferior beings who must accept to live with me under my authority and do go not go out without a burqa or a niqab and so on and so forth. And obviously a feminist is not going, this is impossible that they could both operate in the same society. Both these principles of liberal feminism and Muslim patriarchalism are not compossible rules for that society. So supposing I say, yes, I am responsible. I know what it is to be a Muslim patriarchalist and I know what it is to be a, a liberal person, an anti-patriarchalist, but I think patriarchalism is superior to liberalism and I'm entitled to believe this under liberalism. Liberalism gives me the right to evaluate my beliefs. I've evaluated my beliefs. I think a way of being that is present in Muslim patriarchy is superior to liberalism. 
So I have a right that my beliefs and values should be given equal recognition with those of the feminists. But this is impossible. Here we have come to the fundamental contradiction here. It's impossible that both these principles should rule the relations between men and women in particular in one society. Somebody has to be master. And if we are living in a liberal democracy, it is liberal democratic principle that are the master, that they constitute the hegemonic rule. And other beliefs, while they're entitled to be held, cannot be put into practice because they are incompatible with the hegemonic principle. But that supposes, of course, that a society is entitled to be liberal democratic and to impose its rule, require everybody to, in their actions, conform to the liberal rule. And I said earlier that there is a <coughs> there are attempts to get round the, this radical conflict while preserving the idea that all these ways of being are equally worthy called it's <coughs> Um, particularly developed system by William Connolly, which I recommended on the reading list I gave to Stephen. And he calls it deep pluralism. And what he believes is that there is no possibility of justifying a hegemonic principle. You cannot justify liberalism and you cannot justify anti-liberalism. <clears throat> These are just different forms of thinking and being and they are, because there's no way of sorting out the conflicts, they are equally worthy. We must regard them as... So society should accept but everyone, every way, all these different ways of being should have equal rights to present themselves, demand recognition, and negotiate some sort of relation with their opposites. The trouble with this is that he's still relying on a hegemonic principle, which is the equal worthiness of all these different systems. But if there is no hegemonic principle, nothing can be justified. This can't be either. And if <coughs> it can't be justified, then there's nothing there to regulate the relations between the different groups and their belief systems and identities. There is only relative power and whoever is the strongest 
will impose his power on the others. And this is obviously not a worthy system. So I've been trying to show how we should challenge politics of recognition, what I call the politics of recognition, in a liberal democratic society. I haven't given any reasons why liberal democracies should be considered superior to Muslim patriarchalism or anything else. But the question I was asked is why is what should we challenge in a liberal democracy? And I'm, I've been trying to show how we must challenge this because it's based on a false understanding of equality and generates the most impossible conflict. So that's my answer. Rather long-winded. It's a, it's a very good answer and it's a very difficult heavy subject to contend with. So I think you've dealt with it rather well. Um, the, the, we shall go straight to the final question. Would you kindly tell us about three most influential people in your life and how they impacted you? Or you can could give just... two. Yes, yes, yes. Can I just mention two? Yes, please. One is my father. I didn't know my father particularly well. He was a very, <coughs> very active businessman and was away a lot of the time. And of course, I was at boarding school and he died when I was 15. But he determined that I was to be British. And <laughs> he could have brought me up as a multilingual, multicultural, cosmopolitan, Mediterranean type. But he didn't. So this was a possible identity that I might have had and I think I would have been capable of it and might even have liked it, but was absolutely ruled out by the determination of my father that we were British. And that's how I became British. The second person was a student at Cambridge University who was somewhat older than I was, but still a student, <clears throat> who transformed my beliefs about what I wanted to do and wanted to value. When I went up to Cambridge, I had no particular desire to become an academic and no belief that I could become one. I just thought university, Cambridge University, I was quite good at school, so I was capable of getting into Cambridge, and I got into Cambridge, <coughs> and I thought it was an interesting few years. 
But I was mainly a sportsman and presumed I would, after university, go into business or the city or something like that. But this man utterly convinced me of the wonders of an intellectual life. He was the most intellectual person I had ever come across and had such a deep commitment and knowledge of high, high culture, literature, philosophy. thought in general, that I became convinced that this is what I wanted to do and I eventually found a subject, not economics, which I despised, um, but political philosophy and ethics. And I managed to get a job and pursue what I had come to believe. So those two persons... I think were ones I can't can't think of a third person who influenced me so so manifestly as my father and this older student. Professor John Chave, thank you very much indeed for this illuminating podcast you've given us. Thank you, Stephen. I hope it has. (laughs) Thank you very much for inviting me. (laughs) This podcast was brought to you by the Kamgasa Challenge blog website. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to us. Until next time, goodbye.